morning. There's something about being somewhere in person. I mean, you kind of know that. You could have watched online, but you know that there's something about kind of being here in person. Yesterday, I was watching, my wife and I were watching the Baylor-Oklahoma State game, and Oklahoma State was favored, but Baylor ended up winning. It was a really dramatic goal line stand at the end. Everything that football, it was just fantastic. But what happened is we got a call halfway through the game, and I was told by my, one of my very best friends that he and his son were at the game. And suddenly, it was more interesting than ever. I mean, why would you pay what averages out to be about 400 bucks a piece to go to a Niner game? When you could stay at home, watch it on TV, see it better and not being cold or hot. Because there's something special about being there in person. Why would you travel during the holidays? Um, TSA just announced that for the uh, Thanksgiving season, they processed more than nine and a half million tickets. Why would you join all those crowds? Because there's something about being there in person. Now I know you guys online, there are some of you that shouldn't be here. Um, and there's some of you that can't be here. But there are some of you that can. And I just want to invite you back. Come on back. Something special about being in the room, being here in person. This past summer during our sabbatical leave, Dana and I were going to spend some time in Texas and there was one thing that no matter how far I had to drive and how long I had to do, one of the things that I was going to do was go and see my coach, John Hacker. He's recently, like in the last five years or so, been diagnosed with dementia, and he's struggling with that, and he's a fraction of the man he was. I was convinced that he would not recognize me, and yet I was still going to be there. I was still going to go. little story about going there. Um, when I got there, they, they brought him out, and we sat at this table, and he said, first word out of his mouth as he sat down, he said, Esteban which was his nickname for me, which is the incorrect way to say Steve in Spanish. <laughs> you say it, Esteban, but he always said Esteban. And I was so encouraged when I reached over and I, was just, I couldn't believe that he recognized me. And as soon as he said the name, then I could see in his eyes, the lights went out. In fact, a little bit later on in the conversation, which lasted about an hour, he said to me, do you know Steve Clifford? He just couldn't connect the dots, but I didn't care. I was going to make sure that I was there in person. Because if you care, if you care about someone, you show up. If you can, not all circumstances allow you to be there all the times that you want. But if you can... Because there's something special about being there in person. I've got a lofty goal for us this morning. I want to try to move you beyond your familiarity of the Christmas story to a deeper understanding of God's desire to show up in person. To move you beyond baby Jesus, Hallmark kind of way of thinking to a deeper understanding of knowing that God, fully God, and human, fully human, 
came together in the person of Christ. Because that's what you do when you care. This isn't a story that's just nice and neat and hallmarky. There's pain. There's rejection. There's sacrifice. So that's my goal. Why do I want to do that? Because I needed it. As we started getting ready for this series several weeks ago, I realized the familiarity with the Christmas story has allowed me to skim my way into Advent, and I just don't want to do that. And I don't want you to. So let me pray for us, and we'll see how it goes. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here. Even those that are here online, even those that are here in the tent, we thank you that as we gather around your word, that your spirit will honor it in such a way that transformation is possible for us. And I just confess for us as a community that we tend towards superficiality around the advent. We let Hallmark, more than your word, define the holiday season. And we want to we be shook out of that. So come, Holy Spirit, in the tender ways that you do, come and teach, please. In Jesus' name, amen. God has been silent for 400 years. Now, to put that in context, here's what's happened. A temple's been destroyed, and then another temple has been rebuilt. The Assyrians, then the Egyptians, then the Syrians, now the Romans have all exercised power and dominance over Jerusalem. The world has become united around one language. Greek has now become the common tongue. And because of Rome's influence, you can now travel on roads that didn't exist between countries that used to not allow you in. And you can go there and speak one common language. In fact, this is infiltrated all the way down into Israel where they have retranslated their Hebrew scriptures into Greek. We know that translation as the Septuagint. But there's still huge, huge bad blood between Rome and Israel. The Pharisees and the Sadducees have been birthed during this time of silence. And Jews have migrated up into Galilee only in the last 150 years or so. And then we find that God breaks the sound barrier with the cry of a baby boy. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 24, just eight verses, a shorter version than Luke's version. Luke has the shepherds and the angels singing. And that my, one of my favorite phrases, thanks to um, Charlie Brown, that Mary was great with child. I just love that phrase. Every other version of the scriptures that doesn't translate it that way just breaks my heart. Luke is more the, the hallmark version of what's going on at Christmas. Matthew's version is darker. There's death and threats of death. If, if Luke is the hallmark version, Matthew is kind of the Stephen King version. And 
between the two of them, we get the full story of the birth of Christ. We're going to spend our time in Matthew. It says this in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. Just a really simple little phrase of introduction. But in that, he is reemphasizing and re, uh, or bringing back the point that we talked about last week, which is Matthew is writing a proof text to show that Jesus, in fact, is the promised one, the Messiah, the long-awaited King of Kings, but that it's going to be different. But Messiah, and he, he says right here, he ties it all in. In fact, it's very interesting. The, this is how the birth, that word for birth, is actually where we get our word Genesis. It literally reads, this is how the beginning of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. And he's tying it into the creation story. He goes on to say, his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. If you were Jewish, you would hear this and you would say, that sounds just like Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And Matthew says, this is how the beginning of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. And the Holy Spirit was there hovering. The beginning, in the beginning, the Spirit of God creates. He initiates this creation that we enjoy and Matthew's trying to tell us at the beginning of Jesus, the Spirit of God is recreating, making all things brand new. It is here at this very little verse that we have one of the giant controversies of Christianity in its early days. Very early on, the Scriptures clearly and without apology make this claim that Jesus is both God and man. They do it in such a way like it's almost natural. Even though of all people to embrace that kind of theology, the Hebrew people would have been the least likely that Jesus is God and man to a polytheistic world wouldn't have been a hard jump, a big jump for them to, to because there's just hundreds and thousands of gods. But in the Jewish tradition, there is only one God. And this difficult concept of the Trinity is introduced right at the very first with claims that Jesus is God, fully God, and yet fully man, and yet there is one God. Do you see why we normally jump to Hallmark? This is hard stuff. And the, the, the controversies around um, the early church, certainly by the 4th century, were all around this trying to balance and work out. And all of the cults that come, came out of that 4th century either overemphasized Jesus' humanity or overemphasized his deity. And guys like the great theologian Athanasius, which when I read this quote last service, they, there was some glazing over the eyes. So I'm just going to challenge you. Stay with me here. When it, this fourth century theologian fighting this battle to try to understand how Jesus is both God and man says, the renewal of creation has been wrought 
by the self-same word who made it in the beginning. For the one father has affected the salvation of the world through the word who made it. That this, this concept, it, it, it's not, it is so easy for us to just embrace the, the skimmed down simple version of, Christ, of Christmas and miss this great truth. Now, why is that a big deal? Well, first, because the scriptures will continue to reinforce this concept over and over again. In fact, Paul will go so far as to say, only God can forgive sin. And only man can die for sin. And Jesus was in fact both. See, if you're sitting there thinking, ah, oh, it's not that big a deal. It's gigantic. It's humongous. Even the virgin birth, which we'll come to, is, is predicated on the fact that Jesus is the perfect lamb of God. And sin nature is passed through the uh, patriarchal line. And so Jesus doesn't have an earthly father. Christianity is not a religion founded by some wise sage who sat down and prophesied and taught us how to find God. That is every world religion there is except for Christianity. Christianity is not a wise founded by some wise person saying this is what you got to do to make sure that you can reach to God. What Christianity is, is God reaching down to man. Verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her publicly. Now, Joseph's in a bind. His fiancée went out of town to visit family and she comes back pregnant. And the law says, if you want to be a righteous follower of the law, then what is required of you is that you would not marry an adulterer. You would not marry someone who's pregnant from someone else. And so he actually is in a bind, a gigantic bind. He's got three options. The first one is, is he can publicly disgrace her, he can, and it won't be hard. He just needs to bring her to the public square while everybody's there, and he just is announced. She came back pregnant. I annul this engagement and we are no longer to be married. She possibly could be stoned. Probably not. It was pretty rare in the first century um, to get stoned for this crime. It was more of a public humiliation and, 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 and kind of getting put out of the community. The second option is that he can, do it, he can do it privately. He can just have two witnesses go before uh, a rabbi there in town and say, look, she's obviously pregnant. We were engaged. I'm not the father. I annul this. I, I hand, and he would hand a certificate of divorce to Mary or to Mary's father, and it would be off. He's got a third option. He can break the law and marry her. Now think about that for a minute. The law says he can't marry her, and God says he should. 
By breaking that law, you are saying, I'm not a follower of the law, I'm guilty of it, so that's a sin in that community. But also by taking her as your wife, you're also pretty much declaring, I stand as the father of the child. So it's a double whammy. I mean, when you think about what Jesus, what Joseph does in his obedience, it's quite amazing, actually. You know that sound of a toilet flushing? He didn't know that sound, but if he had, that's what he would have heard, his reputation being flushed. After he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Five dreams in the New Testament, only five. Three of them go to Joseph. One to the wise men and one to Herod's wife at the crucifixion of Christ. The three that go to Joseph say, marry the, boy, the girl. She's righteous, marry her. The next dream is run for your life. And the next dream is it's okay to go home. Joseph, son of David, that's his royal name. Do not, another Matthew emphasis of Jesus being the Messiah, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That explanation really doesn't help, right? What? It's, she's what? I, I don't know if he got the chance to ask some other questions, but we don't have them recorded. But there's about five I can think of. But he simply commanded, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. God is in this. Mary is, is guilt-free. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save the people from their sins. Jesus, we sometimes think that's his, just his first name, um, that his last name was Christ. Christ is a title. Jesus is his name. But his name is really, if you say Jesus, it's really kind of Hellenized. It's, it's Greekized. It's, it's, it's Jesus' name in Greek and then translated into English. His name is literally Yeshua, which we would translate into English Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. God saves. The very name that is assigned to him has this deity and humanity com complex all kind of wrapped in it. And it also kind of lets people know what the purpose of him coming is. Jesus also means, when we take that name, it also means God saves. In the scriptures, when people are given names, it's not like our our culture, the scripture, people are given names. One, it talks about the source of this person. In other words, their family heritage, because that was very important. We learned that last week. But it also talks about the purpose behind this person. And names were more identifiers of personality types and, and, and purposes in life. It used to be that way. Hundreds and hundreds of years ago, perhaps you've done some work with your last name to know that, oh, it was a descriptor. I somehow lived on a cliff somewhere. 
overlooking a Ford. I don't know. All this took place to fulfill, verse 22, what the Lord had said through the prophet, and now quoting something that was written 700 years previous. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. Why a virgin? I've already given you a hint. Because the sin nature, Jesus needing to be perfect, the sin nature being passed down through the father's line. Virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. We don't give Joseph enough credit. What, what the obedience that he exhibits here is quite amazing. This young couple, you can see why God chose them to change the whole world. They're amazing. He did not consummate the marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. God saves. But we're also introduced in this part of the scripture to a second name. It's only used in Isaiah and here in Matthew, and it's Emmanuel. You would think, oh, Emmanuel, that's such a common name for us that it must be all over the scriptures. It's not. Two places. Referred to in a, thir- in a third place, but just in, it's also in Isaiah. So you've, you've got this wonderful um, understanding, and this is also a proclamation of the deity of Christ. His name means literally God with us. God with us. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with men, with men to dwell. You know the rest. Jesus, our Emmanuel. John Wesley, the great founder of the Methodist church, as he was dying on his deathbed, his last words were this. The best of all is God is with us. God is with us. It's a story about who God is and what he does. And there's a passage that kind of gives us some some more insight into this. And it's in an unusual place. It's not usually thought of as a Christmas passage. But in Philippians chapter 2, Paul recorded a first century hymn. Bible scholars are pretty unanimous that, that this was... This was a hymn that was sung in the first churches. Whether Paul wrote it or not, we don't know, or maybe he just copied it down. We don't know who wrote this. But it talks about this wonderful reality of the deity of Jesus. It starts at verse 6 by saying, Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. This is talking about the pre-existence or the preeminence that Jesus enjoyed in heaven. Rather though, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. This is talking about this humility that he accepted, the incarnation coming to earth. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to become obedient to death, even death on a cross. He endured the worst of crucifixion on our behalf. 
leaving the glory of heaven, taking on the limitations of the flesh, and then suffering the very worst of death. Therefore, it says that God exalted him in the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, the exaltation, the glorification that Jesus received because of his obedience to the Father. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The ultimate glorification of the Father, which was Jesus' goal in the first place. This is so unusual. It's so beyond our understanding that you can see why we would be drawn to praying towards a baby Jesus rather than the God-man. But I'm telling you, your Christian faith is cheapened if you miss this truth. And it's throughout scriptures. Here's why it's so valuable. You get to John 14, and look what Jesus says. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I've been with you these three years. Didn't say that last part. I made that up. John chapter 1. John has a different kind of Christmas story. It's really more from a heavenly perspective, and it's a little bit more difficult to to align with the other two Christmas stories and that because he does he's not interested in explaining to you how Jesus was born he's more interested in explaining to you who Jesus is and in John 1 he says this the one who is the true light who gives light to everyone was coming into the world he came into the very world he created but the world didn't recognize him he came to his own people and even they rejected him but to all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word became human. God became human, made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, full of grace and truth. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father and the one and only Son. You see, to understand fully how Jesus came and paid the great penalty for sin, he must be more than man. Otherwise, you could do it for yourself. Why must he do this? Because we have all sinned. And he decides to show up in person. C.S. Lewis writes it like this in his book, Miracles. He says, in the Christian story, God comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down further still to the very roots of the nature he has created, 
But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. In mere Christianity, he said this, the Son of God became man to enable men and women to become sons and daughters of God. What holds us back from this? What holds us, why are we so drawn to the simple versions? Well, I, I want to suggest to you that at least for me and maybe for you, a lot of the time, I don't want God with me. I don't want him and his full awareness on everything I am saying and doing. You know, what I really would like a lot of the times is for God to be kind of a, a cosmic Santa, keeping a list of bad and good people, and I'm clearly good because I define bad in such a way where I am good. And then I, he gives me what I want. Joshua Ryan Butler says this. He says, sunrise dawns and we jet for the shadows. Glory arises and we crawl for the shade. Our problem is not that we're reaching out for God and he's refusing to be found. It's the opposite. God is reaching out for us and we're scattering in other directions. Sobering truth is we don't really want God with us. We want him on our terms. And he refuses to come that way. You see, Christ is a crisis. Now, what do I mean by that? Crisis, if you look it up in the dictionary, a crisis is a stage in a sequence of events at which the trend of all future events, especially for better or for worse, is determined. Crisis is a point in time where time is moving forward and you make a decision that will determine all of the results of future decisions. Christ should be a crisis. You should respond to the offer of grace and say yes to his love. And if you do, he is a crisis. The, the, the decisions that follow after that, that initial following of Christ are influenced by him. But we don't want that. We prefer baby Jesus because baby Jesus offers fire insurance, keeps us out of hell, then allows us to live however we want. Christ is a crisis. He demands it so. You can say no or you can say yes. But you can't say maybe. In saying that, you've said no. And if you think you've said yes, but it doesn't influence any of your decisions in the future, you did not say yes. You embraced intellectually some set of beliefs that you thought would get you in. But Jesus didn't come to establish a set of beliefs that would get you in. He came so you, he could be with you. God with you. And you can see why if you wanted to shipwreck the 
calling and the meaning of Christmas. You just get people busy and distracted. But this crisis of Christ comes with a benefit. And the benefit is the grace and love to live that life out. And this is promised throughout the New Testament. In fact, the book of Matthew It's declared that Jesus has come, God has come so that he could be with us. And this is how the book of Matthew ends. Jesus is with his disciples. He's about to ascend to heaven. These are the last words that we have recorded that he speaks to them. He says to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given me. Only God can make that claim. See, he's not confused. Therefore, go and make apprentices of me in all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And surely I am Emmanuel. Surely I am with you always, even to the end, always. The book of Matthew is bookend, if you would, with the promise of God with us. Isaiah 41, do not fear for I am with you. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the darkest valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil because you are with me. There are some of you that are skimming along and you're in danger of missing the advent. The depth of the Advent. Not, you're still going to have Christmas. You'll still say a prayer. But you'll miss the depth of what God did on your behalf and my behalf. That he might have relationship with us. That he set aside the glory of heaven. Because there's something special about being there in person. When I went to visit John, I knew it was going to be a horrible day. I tried not to, but I cried pretty much the whole visit. But you couldn't have kept me from being there. We drove several hours to get there. And after what that man has done for me and what he means to me, I had to, I had to go. I wanted him to know. John, I love you. I love you like I love very few people in the world. And I know you can't put the dots together. I know you can't even construct sentences anymore. I don't give a crap. I love you. Because that's what you do when you care. And this Christmas, God is saying to you, man, you're having a hard time connecting the dots. (laughs) 
And sometimes you can't even construct sentences about what you really feel and really experience. Man, I, I understand that. But I came to let you know I love you. Wherever you are, God loves you. Whatever you're experiencing, whether Christmas season is something to be anticipated, anticipated or to be dreaded, God showed up because he cares. He is Emmanuel. Don't miss that. Father, thank you. Thank you for such a clear expression of love for us. We are undeserving. <laughs> we are so much less than undeserving. We, and yet, you not only showed up, you continue to show up in our lives. And that you made provision. What seemed like a bad plan initially now makes so much sense. Because now through faith we can walk with you moment by moment. And the truth is, you're not going to let Jesus get pushed off in the corner. You're going to lovingly draw us in. And so we want to cooperate with this. We say, we say, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. And we rejoice. We rejoice that you loved us so much that you showed up in person. Will you help us? Please help us to live with that reality. Please, in Jesus' strong name. Amen.